0: Welcome to Hypospadias Conversations with co-hosts Bonnie Steinberg and John Filippelli. We are members of the community that have experienced living with hypospadias, epispadias, the surgeries that are often used to correct for them. And we wanna to talk to people who are members of that community and their family and friends about many of the feelings and issues that we all have faced. We are not doctors. We do not represent the medical community and we want to be clear that we are discussing our personal experiences. Experiences that too often are not shared, leaving many boys, men, and families feeling that they are alone. You are not alone. Our goal is to offer frank conversations about our thoughts, give many people company, give parents who are wondering what to do with their new babies that have been born with hypospadias or epispadias some resources to think about treatment to think about parenting boys with this difference. The conversations are personal, frank, and we hope that you are aware of how vulnerable we feel, how risky it feels to open ourselves up in public. We hope to cultivate your compassion and understanding and create more safety to have these conversations.
1: In our last hypospadias conversation, I listed many questions that parents and guardians should ask their surgeons and physicians before making the decisions about surgeries. I want to repeat many of those questions and then reflect a little bit more on them. The assumption here is that uh, sometimes the surgeons might answer but there might be some larger considerations that parents need to think about and i hope that i lead the way to those larger considerations the first question as i said any surgeon would say Ask the surgeon how many repairs you do. Where did you train and who helps you in the operating room. Do you teach while you do the surgeries. Do the residents perform parts of the surgeries as they're training. So the teaching of hypospadias repair and urological surgeries in general is a huge, huge and and wonderful endeavor very, very important for the training of any Urologist or urological surgeon. And so, all people who recommend hypospadias and epi- epispadias surgeries would recommend that you connect up with a major teaching center, what is called often in the literature a center of excellence, which of course brings up the question who would want to go to a center that's not excellent? So, parents and guardians would really pride themselves in finding an outstanding surgeon at a center of excellence and in a teaching hospital where residents and other trainees will be part of the of the surgeries there's also as i said a tremendous amount of pride in finding outstanding surgeons And now I see that as a red flag, and I wonder if our zealousness for finding outstanding surgical care and surgeons is a substitute for understanding what the baby really is going to experience, what the family really is going to experience during the entire surgical process and hospitalization. The other question is the nature of these surgeries is extremely technical and the likelihood of complications extremely high, at least 50%. And as I said before, your, urological surgeons often take these as normal. The second question, what, what are the goals of surgery and what tests or measurements will be used to evaluate the outcomes? these surgeries are very invasive and very very intrusive and in order to measure the goals and the outcomes i think surgeons have to be very upfront with parents because especially older boys and adult men have talked sometimes about what the physicians do in order to test their success and how invasive uncomfortable and traumatizing it can be so those are questions also to ask what procedures and methods will you use there are over 200 some odd types of hypospadias repairs they are not categorized they are unique to the individual surgeons and schools of teaching and so it's, it is really worth it to ask exactly what will be done to our child. The next question, is the surgery elective or medically necessary? What are the medical consequences of electing not to do the surgeries? In focusing on medical process and medical necessity and medical outcome, you get the, I guess, approach, the philosophy of your surgeon as long as your baby is urinating healthfully then the surgery is elective what are the medical consequences of electing not to do the surgeries is my child medically healthy now what are the medical risks of surgeries and hospital stays what are the risks that we might face at home during the aftercare what are the risks of the medicines that are prescribed during the procedure and aftercare, anesthesia, antibiotics, pain medications, any other medications. We notice with the babies that they are on many post-operative medications and often for long periods of time. We also know that anesthesia in young children, especially children under three, Is controversial, and there have been uh, numerous medical conferences to debate the pros and cons whether they know or they believe that anesthesia has risks for babies that are under three, or whether that anesthesia is perfectly safe. So, if they are debating that, and this is elective surgery and you need to understand all of the risks and complications not only of the medicines the antibiotics the pain medications antispasmodics for example sometimes you should really have a fuller understanding of what the experience is going to be and how those experiences and medications will affect your child's medical health we're not talking psychosocial we could add on the aspect of trauma but you're really interviewing the surgeon at this point to discuss the medical pros and cons is your child medically healthy will they be as healthy after the surgery after the hospital experience and after all of these anesthesia and medication interventions allied with this again to Hammer this point home with your son's surgeons. How is my son's urological functioning now? How does his urethra function now? They are going to take away this urethra and they're going to recreate a urethra in the operating room. So the question is, is the urethra that you will create in the operating room as good as the one that he has now? What about sphincter control? Is that good now? And how might that be affected during or after the surgeries? You can hear my bias that the one that your baby is born with in general is better than the one that they will create in the operating room. Next question What are the risks of trauma? What are the possible impacts that this kind of surgery might have physically, medically, or psychologically? Assessing trauma is a very subjective activity. And there is a famous researcher who has been given many uh, NIH grants to discuss and study trauma in the babies, in the children, in the teens that have undergone hypospadia surgery. I think that the reports that come from the growing boys, families, and men report much more trauma than the researchers are willing to admit and assess and so you are risking trauma you are risking some kinds of what we generally call PTSD post traumatic stress disorder i don't know if people would define that this way but if you talk to men who are willing to talk about their hypospadias surgical experiences they report trauma and self-consciousness and anxiety. Now one might say, but the kid was born different. So they're going to have, they're gonna be different. They're gonna have to deal with their difference. I understand. And yes, the parent or the guardian needs to think about how to create a really self-confident, resilient child. That's the huge parenting question for parents with completely regular kids parents with kids that have differences have huge questions in this area but when you add the journey the trauma the intrusions of the medical uh, system that they're going to be subjected to the trauma is compounded by their interactions john all of these questions bring up the trauma that is underreported and underdiscussed that the babies go through that the families go through that the developing boy goes through and then that the men go through and part of the trauma is that you you sometimes become afraid to get medical care and you're always on a search for compassionate and also skilled urologists Do you want to reflect on some of the memories that you have or memories and thoughts that are raised by these questions and some of your own experiences seeking medical care more as an adult? Uh, Sure.
0: I'll I'll be happy to. I I have to say listening to the last episode with the questions uh, really caused me to reflect and honestly started to kind of relive some painful memories, but Part of the healing that's come with with this journey of, of living with hypospadias is, you know, that we could visit some places, but we don't have to stay. And so, you know, I think it's important that we get this information out and so that I can share some of the reflections that occurred to me. For instance, when you're a child, I guess you don't think about it in terms of you go to your primary care uh, physician. You don't really necessarily choose the doctor or your parents might notice your behavior towards a certain doctor that you like or don't like but in terms of actually having the autonomy to to select them you don't really have that you just kind of go where where your parents take you i was fortunate enough in regard to my hypospadias that my parents and specifically my mother were able to through networking and asking the right questions found a very skilled and competent pediatric urologist, surgeon, and his team in the 70s when I was born and 80s, so that in that sense, I was in good hands. Despite that, I was always anxious, always felt violated, always felt traumatized, even by going to a simple checkup. And when I hear some of the questions that you were posing or suggesting to our listeners, it really kind of filled me with a great sense of, uh, oh, thank goodness, other people have this information. And then, if I'm being honest, it kind of elicited a little bit of sadness that back then in the 70s, I didn't have those words. I didn't have that ability to to think about these questions. That would have been very valuable. So once I aged out of care, which for me, it was around 23 years old, that it occurred to me that I was going to have to find new urologists. And that was a very, very hard thing to do. Uh, you, You build a relationship over time, especially when it's such major work that's being done as this is. And you do develop a relationship with the doctors. You develop a relationship with the nurses in My book I mentioned when I was a child, I I played in soccer and one of the nurses came to, after I had been out of the hospital for some time and back being an active child, she came to one of my games to support me. And so you do, you build up these relationships and you, frankly, you build an attachment to some of these doctors, especially when you're young, because they're uh, the ones that are helping you. As you get older and... You have these experiences, these traumatic experiences of recovering medically and emotionally and such, you may not realize that you're bringing that experience into the room with you automatically. You may try to be mindful and treat it as a new experience. When you're dealing with hypospadias and the issues that come with it, I feel that it makes it a little bit tougher and almost unavoidable to not. Bring that anxiety into the room a little bit. And so when you're me and you're trying to find these doctors and you don't have the right questions necessarily, and you have this extra experiences and baggage, let's be honest, that that can interfere sometimes with your ability to uh, evaluate, you know, doctors and the relationship for, for yourself. And so you know throughout my twenties and my thirties it was very it was very difficult. I went through a lot of different urologists at one point because i didn't feel right with them and i didn't frankly i didn't feel right having to keep going to urologists. I was tired I was kind of worn out from the process. Some of the doctors, by no fault of their own, they were just you know very honest. There was one fellow I remember going to in my late 20s, I started developing some issues after my surgery at 23. And this doctor was on Long Island and was uh, referred to me through family and, and such. And I went to him and during the examination, he kinda said, this works way too extensive for me. I don't wanna mess with it. You know, you're really better off going to somebody else. And I appreciated that greatly because you don't want somebody to, you know, you want them to kind of put their ego to the side in that situation. And as talented and skilled a doctor, as I'm sure he was, I, I always remember that and always appreciated the fact that he was on enough and humble enough to, to say that to me. And it was in both of our better interests for me to walk back out the door. And ironically, he had given me the name of a couple of doctors. And at the time, I was still filled with such anxiety about the prospect of calling new doctors and doing this on my own after having kind of had my hand held with the doctors for so long because I didn't pick those doctors, never having to do this before. I kind of avoided it. And so years and years later, I was fortunate enough to meet some friends from HEA, Online and share our stories. And what you know, the
1: Hypospadius and Epispadius yes, Association. Yes, the Hypospadius
0: yes. and Association. And what you know, I put out a question and asked at that point, years and years later, I said, Does anybody have the name of any reputable uh, surgeons, you know, for this in the area, in my area? And I got a couple of names back from a couple of fellows in in New York City in the New York City area, and one of the names was the exact same name of the one of the surgeons that the urologist all those years ago had had provided to me and I said, "Well, what do you know and so I went and this was back in two thousand fifteen and met this surgeon and he's to this day is still my doctor. He actually has uh, moved from New York City uh, since then. And he's moved two hours away from from where I am. And I still go to him uh, because I trust him. And uh, we have a nice relationship, a good, he has a nice bedside manner, um, keeps it light. He's conservative, but knowledgeable. And for me, that's what I need. And so, you know, it to me, that, that little anecdote is very indicative for me of what can happen. Maybe I would have found a different type of relief for some other things, or I would have been more at ease sooner in my life with, around doctors had I gone to this doctor when the urologist had presented it to me, instead of being so anxious and avoidant that I just, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. And... So it has been quite a journey. And I'll just also just add quickly that this isn't just with urologists as well. With other doctors, and you have to kind of explain if you're having a procedure done, you know, there may be times when you have to mention this to them. For instance, uh, that very same doctor had pointed out to me that as you get older, or you know, going forward, if you have a situation where, say, like your knee is having surgery and you're going to be bed bound, uh, and you need to have a catheter, make sure that you have someone who is well versed, and they have the urology department at the hospital you're at or such, of someone that understands what hypospadias is, and can accommodate. You know, in my case, needing a specific size catheter uh, in order to not interfere with the work that was done, and those are you know, considerations that you don't necessarily think of really ever. (laughs) I'm so glad that he mentioned it to me and he actually uh, also wrote a letter in that regard. So I have that now. So I kind of bring that with me for my files and such so that they know uh, in that sense, because the last thing I need is to go for something completely unrelated and find myself having an issue because I didn't bother to reference that. So there are all these things that to me really get churned up when I listen to some of these questions, but at the end of it, I really feel that they're valuable that what you presented. And in in my experience, these are definitely things that I could have used. And I think that our listeners will definitely be able to utilize.
1: I have to say that listening to your recounting is so painful and moving. And the courage that it takes to come to this space in your life where you're open is is a tremendous service also to any listener. I wanted to um, comment on a couple of things. First of all, the idea that you can visit these traumatic places but you don't have to stay—fantastic description. Hard work. The other interesting thing is you're listening to my questions, and you know we're both older adults here. And you're saying that you wish you had those words. You were a child. How could a child have these words? And it was up to the adults in your life. Parents are vulnerable, worried about their kids. It's up to the professional adults to start these dialogues more responsibly and with a more holistic, wide-ranging approach. And that's that's what we're trying to demonstrate here. So for babies, they are voiceless. For young children, they are voiceless. And it's really up to the professional adults and the experienced adults to uh, use these words, start these conversations, and point these things out. And there are so many things in your story, but I wanted you used the words age out of care which I think is critical for a parent or a guardian to think about, or physicians to think about, that what, what is done when you're two and three and seven and 10, you age out of care and the care fi- is so difficult to find. And you're so grateful to the honest surgeon who says you have a complicated case. I can't do this complication stuff. And so that sort of dovetails with the pride that we have in finding outstanding caregivers but also the red flag of needing superior caregivers and practitioners. It's a red flag because when you age out of care, you're too traumatized <laughs> and and you're and you're vulnerable and you need more sophisticated care.
0: We're advocating for our children when they can't speak for themselves or when they're too young to really comprehend what needs to be said or what, what's what's going on. And then my hope and full disclaimer, I do not have children, but my hope would be that we can reach a point earlier rather than later where if it's a situation like this, where a child is going to be exposed to doctors for a good part of their life to teach them, as you said, with the, with the professional adults of how to advocate for themselves so that it, that's not an additional source of strain for them, for their minds and their bodies. And it becomes something that is very workable, holistically, as you said, together to make this happen. Because at the end of the day, it's very simple. The child or the patient and the doctor and the parents all want what's best for the patient and so right there is the common ground we're all trying to get to the point where this person heals and they can all move forward with all this extra baggage and having issues like we were just talking about not being able to properly advocate for yourself whether you're making a phone call or an appointment or in the office itself is crucial and that is a very very big part of in my view the success of navigating this without that it becomes much much harder
1: sometimes getting medical care involves discomfort sometimes getting medical care involves dealing with those front desk people who are just not as sensitive to your plight sometimes people are really anxious to call the doctor anxious in the waiting room for all kinds of reasons But this one, I have to say, has a unique component because the parents decided to give kids, babies, boys, surgeries that have these lifelong complications and interventional trauma. And that is different than the average person who's 45 years old and maybe thinking, maybe I have breast cancer. That is different than the average 60 year old who's all of a sudden got prostate problems. And, uh, I got to call the, I got to go, I, you know, and it, it's just a, the, the normal burdens of aging of life of healthcare. This one is, has unique aspects, John. And, you know, it's, it's great that you say everyone often shares this burden, but no. This, this does have a unique component, and we're here to acknowledge that and to describe that um, And and again, we're looking for the men for whom this isn't an issue. They had the surgery, it solved everything. They're fine. They're 55 years old and they're really happy. They've never had a complication. What are we talking about? Please (laughs) contact us at hypospadiasconversations at gmail.com. Tell us, give us that, that other side of the picture. The hosts of this podcast are not medical professionals and the information presented during the podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. John and Bonnie are peers in the hypospadias community, people who have been affected directly by hypospadias and we are sharing our experience with you. If you or someone you love has a medical question concerning hypospadias, please consult your physician.